Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today, as he does on most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back. Always great to have you on the program. Great pleasure as always, Vago. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, great note today, uh, as as always, uh, on past trends and what you can learn from them, right? I mean, you say this is the value of an analyst, uh, and also uh, the challenge and the difficulty of analyses at inflection points like this, right? I mean, everybody is looking uh, for a way ahead. Uh, you looked at the period between 1931 and 1945 uh, for uh, lessons that could shape uh, 22 to 25. We talked a little bit about those lessons last week, but you've been reading uh, Field Marshal Lord Allen Brooks' uh, diaries, uh, which are really one of the greatest uh, military diaries in, in, in history as somebody who was a great diarist and also strategically uh, very astute at a very critical period. What what does that period, right? What are I don't want to say what it, what that period teaches us, but what are the important elements from that period uh, that stand out uh, for you? Well, it's just the uncertainty, Bago, um, that exists. You know, history is written in hindsight, right? And it all looks very logical when it when it comes together. You know, it's a sequence of events. But, you know, when you read diaries and, and people put down their thoughts about what they think could happen, um, you know, in the, in the case of, of uh, Lord Allenbrook's diary, he was chief of the Imperial General Staff of the British Army. You know, his comments about, you know, he'd say, oh, Battle of Britain, well, that was the end of the invasion threat and, and um, you know, the concerns that Britain faced. And I mean, he's, you know, writing through 1941 and, he, you know, that that threat did not go away even into 1942, as far as he was concerned. The concerns about you know, would would Germany use um, poison gas, for example? And and I think it's always good, you know, particularly when we look at an event like the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, and the expectations that, oh, the war started will be over very quickly. You know, either, either Ukraine's going to fold or Russia's going to fold, you know, Putin will get overthrown or something. And, you know, that's kind of what I was riffing off was, um, these these expectations that wars are going to be short and for the most part in the in the post-war era they have been relatively short but we're on to something different i think in the russia-ukraine war and and that was kind of the second lead-in was i'm reading richard overy's uh, blood and ruins the last imperial war 1931 to 1945 i'm only on about 200 pages of uh 880 page book um but, you know, you're reading this thing and, you know, the initial parts where he covers 1931 to 1941, it just, it was screaming at me, um, you know, some of the parallels in that time period and, and what I see today. Not, not to say that we're on the verge of World War III, but there, there sure are some very important lessons, I think, for people to keep in mind. And there is a lot of debate and discussion uh, still about whether or not, for example, whatever would happen, uh, right? I mean, there was this sense that whatever would happen with, with Russia would be short, sharp, and fast, just like that would be the case for China uh, in a war with China. And actually, there are some in government who, who say, you know, um, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall being one of them, who ask, well, what if this is a long war? 
uh, and and something that grinds on. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the Russo uh, the, the Russo Ukrainian War uh, in in a second, but sort of push you a little bit on. Okay, so looking at that uh, period. Um, what are some of the things that should, should be shaping our approaches in this more immediate term, right? Because you could look at this as um, almost a, a centennial center over where people fear we may be going into another world war, right? And then in this case, we're seeing that the Chinese and the Russians are together, the North Koreans, uh, as we've heard from Patrick Cronin, uh, Dr. Cronin of the Hudson Institute, uh, speaking on uh, the program, uh, you know, that the North Koreans may, might make actually troops available uh, to fight on behalf of the Russians uh, in, in Ukraine. What are some of the actions we need to be taking and considering in this, you know, 20, 2022, 2025, 2027 range, if we're going to maintain our deterrent advantage? Well, there's something else, you know, that's been on my mind. There's a guy at Credit Suisse named Zoltan Pozar, um, who also wrote a note last week. He's a Credit Suisse. He's kind of an interest rate guy, but, but very, very thoughtful. And it's been making the rounds. Uh, the note was called War and Industrial Policy. And he also kind of picks up on this theme of, of kind of history. He, spe he specifically references a book written in 2015 uh, by Dale Copeland on economic interdependence and war. And, you know, what Copeland found, and I think what we've seen playing out is, uh, you know, as long as there's trust in the global trade system, great powers can get along. When that trust starts to break down, that's when you really start seeing the things that we've talked about for so often on this show that, um, you know, global supply chains get fragmented. Uh, people start investing in their own domestic capacities. And I think you've seen strains of that, um, you know, the CHIPS Act being one, um, you know, the, the kind of sorting out on rare earth elements, you know, can we develop our own sources, uh, domestic energy policy, you know, kind of these moves towards more autarkic supply chains. And I, th I think, so that would be, for me, lesson number one on all this, that we're, we're just in a fundamentally different era than existed in the, in the 90s and the first two decades of the, 20, of the 2000s. Um, and what are the ramifications of it? I mean, I think it's just a much more far-reaching set of, um, of assumptions and presumptions that people are going to have to make. You know, the, the Fed held their meeting last Friday in uh, Thursday and Friday in Jackson Hole. You know, Powell comes out and says rates are going to be high. Well, this is one thing that um, that Zoltan talked about, which is, you know, generally when you reshore stuff, it's going to be inflationary. I mean, you're not right. able to take advantage of $3, $2 a rate labor, it's going to cost money. Um, governments are going to have to get more involved in this, both to incentivize companies to, you know, relocate, but also to help train <clears throat> workforces, um, educate people. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a all encompassing far reaching set of changes. And I think that's, that's just a lesson that is important, um, particularly, you know, kind of going back to the late 1930s, because there is just this really through the course of the 1930s and up through 41, you know, this expectation that, oh, we're, we can launch these campaigns, you can launch these wars, and they're going to be over very quickly. And right. you certainly saw that play out with Russia-Ukraine, 
we're now, I think, almost 190 days into a war that is looking at most of the other conventional conflicts that have been fought. I'm, I'm going to exclude Korea and, uh, well, I, I would include Korea in that, South Korea, but I'd exclude um, the Vietnam War from that, although there were certainly conventional phases to it. Um, I would exclude Afghanistan and Iraq, but it's now, you know, one of the longest post-war conventional wars uh, that we've seen. And, and I just don't think, you know, is it going to end in 2023? Maybe, you know, I've heard some people say this is going to be a five-year war. Um, right. Others, you know, it's going to last even longer than that. So that's going to be a very important prism through which this great power competition is going to be amplified. And, uh, you know, when you see Iran moving closer to Russia, uh, China so far seems to be hedging, but that could change too. So I, I just think we're we're looking at something very different and kind of the central message to me is it's going to affect all sorts of behaviors and investment strategies and uh, and frankly, corporate strategies as well, too. I mean, one of the things, and we've been discussing this, as you know, on the business podcast for some time, we were in a period, um, you know, I mean, we were in La La Land, right? End of the Cold War. Uh, we can uh, partner and profit uh, from our former adversaries. Uh, no, you know, war is bad for business. Uh, nobody would want it. Obviously, the Chinese wouldn't want it. And indeed, both of these nations converted that wealth uh, into military capabilities uh, with which to challenge uh, the United States, right? Well, they were saying this to us. We chose not to believe it and whistle past those graveyards. Now, all of a sudden, uh, we're paying close attention to it. Um, when you look at Russia, there's a tendency of looking at it as the military stalemate without looking at actually the remarkably sophisticated economic campaign that Russia is waging, right? First, to destroy uh, Ukraine's uh, industrial capabilities, right? Whether it's at Azovstal, whether it's at the Mittal Arsenal, uh, Mittal Works uh, uh, nearby uh, that sit on one of the world's richest iron ore seams, uh, by the way, uh, right? I mean, so you can't move those facilities like like other ones. Um, it looks like the Russians wanted a reward uh, for uh, the grain deal. They haven't got it, so they're likely to shut uh, shut that down and resume strikes on on grain supplies grain production is derailed. And indeed, Russia continues to use energy as a weapon. Are we focused on the military stalemate and not under, you know, and as, as Sash yesterday observed, governments in Europe have done a remarkably poor job blaming Vladimir Putin for higher energy and oil prices, um, whereas Putin is using this as, 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 a, as a weapon. Is, are we considering the economic elements of warfare, Byron, as much as we should, and is Vladimir Putin actually winning the economic war here, um, well, if, if you look at this debate. over a longer I mean, term? I'm sure there are people in the intelligence community who know this. I, I've seen very little public comment on it, and I, I'm sure there are ways you could start to get at it. But um, it doesn't look like the Russian military has collapsed. It doesn't look like their military uh, production has, has been frozen. Um, you know, they're still equipping uh, this third core, the third army core that has been talked about in some of the Twitter channels, uh, you know, with, with pretty modern equipment. They're still firing precision guided weapons, although not in the quantity of, of the initial day of the war. Um, 
So as much as economic sanctions have affected the lives of daily Russians, it's it's far from clear to me that they're having the, the real intended uh, impact of, of really throttling Russia's defense industry. And so I think that's a really interesting point. You know, could, and to me, what it suggests is you're, you're going to see, you know, further efforts, further rounds of tightening now. Then the question becomes, well, how how will other countries line up on this? And to the point on Europe, and I would say, you know, really the rest of the world, I mean, there are there are countries that don't want to see Russia driven into the ground, that um, they see Russia as a, a viable partner, may not be the best, but um, they're not they're not going to kind of line up to put a uh, 20 foot barrier around Russia and, and let them uh, let them wither on the vine. And so it's just and, and maybe that's a lesson also from the 20s and 30s. Uh, there's another book that was published called The Economic Weapon by Nicholas Mulder. Uh, that talked about sanctions as a tool in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, obviously, you you can push things too far, and that's something also that Overy talked about. Japan is is the, the the perfect example of that. You know, when the U.S. cut off oil exports, uh, that was really a trigger for Japan to say, okay, you know, we're not going to agree to all these U.S. demands about what what we're going to do in China. That launched them on a military adventure in the South and really commenced uh, the, the that part of the World War II that uh, obviously led to massive loss of life and changes in in Asia. So these things, I, I don't know what the right answer is. I know that. The, you know, like so many things, there are multiple tools in the toolbox. Um, and I suppose the key thing is you just want to make sure that you're able to deter people. Um, and arguably deterrence, it failed with Russia and Ukraine, and it's probably failing in, in some other areas as well, too. Uh, that, uh, you know, that that's that's an important element that we have to keep hammering on. Do, do, you, do you get that sense? Um... Are we still deterring the Chinese from your perspective? Yes. yes. I mean, the, to me, you know, the data that the Taiwan Ministry of Defense publishes on uh, air defense identification zone incursions, I mean, it's it's like 400 individual aircraft type uh, in, in August alone. It's off the charts. But, you know, so far, it, it's kind of intriguing. The New York Times ran this story last week about the blockade scenario. Uh, for China. And um, CSIS had an event a week ago, also on kind of what, what this latest crisis really meant. And I forget who actually made these comments, but I thought they were interesting, which is, you know, one element of those exercises, China was not <clears throat> demonstrating an ability to stop, board, and inspect merchant vessels. And you think, if you're going to put a blockade on Taiwan, you know, it's not not just going to be flying aircraft around the island and, and randomly picking off ships. I mean, any blockade would involve that level of, of expertise and training. And, you know, I think China, for now, asked me this question in 2025, but I, I'm still skeptical that they'd consciously launch something in 2022, 23, 24. Uh, right. 
you know, that's my own assessment, but I just, I don't think they're ready. I don't think that, I think they are deterred by um, questions about, you know, how they execute that operation, how, how, what, what would be their ultimate degree of, of success. And as I believe you participated in uh, this kind of war game that uh, some of the think tanks have been holding on Taiwan and, you know, the, the China can still miscalculate. Um, you know, that was lesson number one from the 1930s is the number of miscalculations that were made by governments uh, when they launched military action at scale against other states. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, the Chinese, I assume, are also doing their own war gaming. And I can't imagine that they're coming uh, at, at dramatically different conclusions than what the, uh, the Washington think tank game has shown so far. Mark Hansen of CSIS was kind enough uh, to uh, uh, invite a number of reporters uh, to observe uh, the war games, and they were very illust- uh, 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 very illuminating. I mean, a lot of fifth-generation aircraft and, and very, very good 4.5 or fourth-generation airplanes were destroyed on runways uh, in long-range mis- missile strikes, right? I mean, so we weren't even losing them in combat. We were losing a dozen squadrons on the ground before they'd done anything. Uh, ultimately, right? I mean, underscoring that uh, discussion that we had last week uh, on Overy's book, right? That you need volume, you, you need numbers. I mean, one of the greatest stories, I think, uh, Byron, was uh, when, when you recounted, uh, you know, a whole bunch of experts were telling FDR uh, how many airplanes he needed in sort of 38, 36, 30, you know, that period. And Hap Arnold apparently was in the room. Uh, and even though the two notoriously had a stormy relationship, turned to Hap Arnold and said, Hap, you know, what did you think of that? You know, and I think they'd said like America will need 10,000 airplanes and half Arnold told them, sir, we need at least 10 times that many uh, airplanes for what's to come. Uh, Right. Uh, Which, which I thought was, um, was amazing. Um, Let me just push uh, on uh, the point though, that, that Sash made, right. Are, are leaders doing a good enough job, uh, Byron, uh, even in the domestic political context of sort of putting the blame and the onus on on Putin. Because if you listen to GOP members, it's almost as though Joe Biden is, you know, this is all Joe Biden's fault. Whereas, you know, I mean, higher energy prices are something that comes, you know, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, No, I don't don't think the messaging, you know, and I'd, I'd include the United States in this too. I mean, unfortunately it is sacrifice um you know and and that's it it it's hitting people <clears throat> in their pocketbooks not necessarily um the the richest people in in Europe or the United States uh but but I think you know this idea that <clears throat> there's a reason you're doing this <clears throat> it's not some you know far away place it's it's Ukraine you know it's it, and it, it is having a direct impact that you know Hopefully, you know, some realignment can occur in energy policy and, and, you know, but this is, as you saw some of the rhetoric last week, and I think as you're seeing, you know, in, for example, the consumer confidence numbers that are coming out of Germany, it's been been pretty tough. And that's probably the biggest risk is, uh, I think there are Italian general elections coming up on uh, September 25th, that might be an interesting harbinger. You know, the German defense budget is coming together. Um, you know, they're still sticking with the special defense fund. But as this crisis worsens and, and people are like, hey, it, you know, it, I get it, but um, I can't heat my home this year or I can't buy firewood or whatever, uh, 
you know, it, it's going to be a pretty, pretty tough time period. And I really think leadership on all sides should be much more vocal about um, a trying to, to ease the pain that I think are a lot of people are going to feel, but also under underscore like these are changes that we just have to make. And, you know, the whole notion about inflation. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But, you know, if you can't buy everything from China, you know, you're going to pay Americans, you're going to pay Europeans the labor rates that they're accustomed to. Um, and I just think it's a it's a secular change that's going on that uh, we're, we're going to reset a lot of things. And um, the political leadership, however, has, has not been very good about um, picking at some of the, the partisan attacks that really, to me, haven't gotten it at what the core really what, what is changing here. The most important role of leadership is communicating, communicating clearly uh, and and across the board. And indeed, uh, you know, it's astonishing to me how uh, NATO and the EU are weakening uh, in uh, in Europe and even in France uh, as um, political dynamics in the messaging. I mean, I mean, we have a tendency of thinking of the Russians as very clumsy, but their messaging uh, operations tend to be remarkably sophisticated, actually, and they're they're very opportunistic, right? I mean, they do take advantage of the political dynamic in the United States, for example, uh, and uh, and and other uh, other places. And a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, very very quickly, uh, prime. Primaries. Uh, we have a couple more minutes uh, left, and you mentioned sort of the impact of primaries. You're watching all of these primary races to tell us uh, what the outlook looks like uh, for uh, November. Give us your sense on that, uh, and then give us also uh, the week ahead, right? It's kind of a light week as, as everybody sort of yep. goes into uh, uh, Labor Day, but then we're looking at a cascade of, of nothing but busy until Christmas. I think Okay, so let's start with the primaries. Um, you know, the narrative, I think, started to shift a bit that, uh, you know, the GOP was just going to mop up the House and maybe maybe flip the Senate as well. Uh, I think what you're finding, and it's showing up in some of the polls and some of the turnout, that the social issues have become more important, particularly the whole debate about abortion, that it really is driving Democratic turnout. And maybe some of the inflation economic concerns, particularly as the price of gas has come down, haven't been as, as salient. And so some of these uh, primary results have been, you know, suggesting that that narrative is going to change. Although, you know, I'd take a couple of grains of salt on this because, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that people really don't make up their mind on these elections till after Labor Day. And I think you really have to see, you know, what happens on the economic front uh, in in October, really right up to the election. Uh, but I think, you know, the 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 narrative that um, Biden was going to lose heavily in the midterms and deal with uh, GOP control, House and Senate, um, you know, that that's probably got a bigger question mark about it. Now, I felt <clears throat> that split party control would lead to gridlock yet again. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, there's an article today, um, the, the next probable chair of the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, if the GOP were to win, is looking for a trillion dollar defense budget. Um, 
you know, is that even possible with split party control in Congress? Uh, probably unlikely. And we're, you know, on the verge of yet another CR to start FY23 off, you know, political gridlock is, is not conducive to the type of changes that need to be made in defense. Defense will again be hostage to the broader debates about defense versus non-defense discretionary spending. So I don't see split party control as a, as a positive for, for defense. And as I said, you know, if you get single party control, you know, Democrats are still going to have to be mindful of the 2024 election. And maybe there's a little bit more leeway to, to keep moving these defense numbers up a bit higher. Um, and I think I think they can, as long as interest rates remain relatively low. Uh, and and uh, let's take a look at the uh, week uh, ahead. Uh, and I should tell, I should commend everybody to check out uh, Mackenzie Eaglin uh, of AEI. Had a terrific conversation with the Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown, and, and so that should rank high on any, everybody's watch list from my perspective. But uh, but aside from uh, watching that, what are some of the other things that folks ought to be paying attention to uh, over the coming week and going into next week? Well, clearly, you know, the status of the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, there's news this morning that Ukraine did appear to launch their offensive uh, in the southern part of the country. Um, you know, what kind of gains could they make? I, I'm still not expecting a major breakthrough or collapse, but uh, that remains a paramount issue uh, to, to focus on. The um, Wilson Center was doing something with, uh, with General Raymond on Wednesday on Space Force. Um, and there are a couple of other issues. There may be a pop-up issue or two on what's going on in Iraq today, uh, which is pretty intriguing. And uh, I know Middle East Institute was doing something about Iran's Arab strategy. And so the whole status of Iran and the JCPO and how Iran is behaving in the Middle East, I think is going to be important as well, too. Um, there's some non-defense non uh, issues that, for example, WIDA, the Washington International Trade Association, is ho holding on trade and inflation that are, you know, of interest if you're focusing on some of these macroeconomic factors that we talked about. But oh, one other thing I forgot to mention, Vago, is the Danish defense minister is going to be at the Atlantic Council this week talking about Baltic security. Uh, which should be uh, utterly fascinating, given uh, obvious uh, Denmark's obvious uh, interest in Baltic security, and indeed a completely different ball game than where we were six months ago with uh, Sweden and Finland uh, now uh, getting steadily cleared by countries to join NATO. Agreed, absolutely. It's always famous last words, but it should be a quiet week from a defense news flow standpoint. Nothing could possibly go wrong now. Uh, and uh, and all eyes certainly will be on the Artemis uh, launch on Friday. Uh, obviously, they scrubbed today because of uh, some technical uh, challenges. So we've got our fingers crossed. Uh, it's a very, very big, very complicated uh, mission. And we wish NASA uh, all the best success on that. Thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure uh, having you on the program uh, and look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you, Vago.